This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is August 10th. It is a Tuesday. We are going to talk about the possibility that Fernando Tatis might end up in the outfield. We're going to talk about how the fourth place Blue Jays are absolutely for real. Matt is going to dive into the Phillies and how they might have the MVP favorite and the Cy Young favorite. I'm going to talk about the Giants and the death of batting practice. Before we get into a couple guys you should know and some rants and rave. First, very quickly, Matt, I don't know how much baseball you watched last night. It was a weird night. There were only five games scheduled and then the Cubs game got rained out. And then the White Sox pounded the Twins into space. So I watched the Royals-Yankees game, the start of it anyway. And Jameson Tyone was like fantastic. You know, six innings, zero earned runs. Nobody's really paid attention to the fact that he's been incredible lately. Last seven starts, six earned runs. Anyway, it was scoreless through six innings, at which point I fell asleep. And I woke up to find out that it ended 8-6 in 11 innings. From the seventh inning to the 11th inning, there were 10 half innings. Every single one of those innings had a run scored. The Royals scored in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11 innings and lost the game. The Yankees blew saves in the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th innings and won. That's the first time basically in recorded history that's ever happened. And oh yeah, Giancarlo Stanton hit a ball 122 miles an hour for a ground out. I don't know if you watched that game, but I felt like I needed to bring it up just because I love how like on a night where there's no baseball games, one particular game can still come up with some of the stupidest facts you could possibly imagine. This is why I love baseball so much. The blowing four saves and winning is kind of incredible. And it feels like after you know four months of the Yankees losing every single one of these games, they've won like 10 of them in the last two weeks of just like crazy comebacks, late inning, one run, extra innings. So uh, baseball has a way of evening itself out. That seems to be happening uh, with the Yankees this season. They've won a lot of weird games recently. Can we talk about uh, what's going on in San Diego and this possibility that Fernando Tatis Jr., who is on the injured list uh, with another shoulder problem, may come back as an outfielder? I've, I've got a lot of things I want to talk about here, but what what did you first think when you saw that? I thought that this feels like a really roundabout way of trying to avoid having to bench Eric Hosmer is honestly <laughs> what I thought. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not joking. Like that's kind of what it feels like to me. Not saying that Tatis can't be a good outfielder because I think he could be a transcendent outfielder eventually. But the idea that this would mitigate injury risk seems really really fraught to me. Okay, so I agree with one of the things you said and not the other. The the part about mitigating injury risk, I totally agree. This year he has missed time for four different things: uh, the shoulder three times and an oblique once. Here's how those things happen: in April he hurt his shoulder while swinging. He in June he hurt his oblique while swinging. In later in June he hurt his shoulder while diving in the field. Okay, and then this last one he hurt it while sliding in the third base as a base runner. So it's not like every single time he's got hurt 
has been on the field uh, at shortstop. So I, I agree with you at that point. The part I'm not so sure about is the Hosmer part, because I don't know, taking it out, an infielder out of the infield equation, doesn't it just make it easier for Hosmer to stick? Because what will happen then is you'll have Cronenworth mostly at shortstop and, you know, Haseon Kim, and then Frazier would play second, and then Hosmer would play first. Like, isn't the best way to get Hosmer out of the lineup is to have Cronenworth at first base and Tatis at shortstop? That's what I'm saying is, like, they don't want to have to bench Hosmer. So, like, yeah. uh, let's move Tatis to the outfield. That way we oh. won't have to have the, make this tough oh. decision is what I'm saying. Got it. Um, it, the whole thing is weird to me. I looked into this. Like, I tried to find if there were any historical comps. Like, if there had ever been a guy who had played primarily shortstop and moved to the outfield, like, in the middle of the same season. I'm sure it's happened in off seasons. And so I went back to the start of recorded history, American League and National League, and I looked for every guy who'd played 25 games at shortstop and 25 games in center field in the same season. There were 15 players, but none of them are the same kind of thing. 14 of those players were like your typical multi-positional guys, you know, 14 guys in 15 seasons because Melvin Mora did it twice. So it's like Melvin Mora, Chris Taylor, Chris Owings, like all these guys who played multiple spots anyway. It's not the same thing. Uh, there was actually one scenario I found where it was the reverse of this, where Mickey Stanley, who was a pretty good defensive outfielder for the Tigers in the 60s, late in 1968, and I'm talking like the last two weeks, came in to play shortstop and played there in the World Series, which imagine that happening today. I cannot find anybody who has done this. And I think you're right. It's weird that, to think that it'll keep him healthier. The other thing that, that came up to me is, is, I don't know if you remember, but I think two years ago, after his rookie year, they tried to get Francisco Lindor, and they probably would have moved him to the outfield. So this is an idea that has maybe been percolating for a couple of years, but then he was really good on defense last year. It got off to a rough start there again. Um, there's some other recent examples. If you go back to the injury thing, like in 2019, the Dodgers moved Cody Bellinger to the outfield because he hurt his shoulder diving at first base. Like, okay, that makes sense. But then also like a week ago, Dave Roberts said Mookie Betts would play second base to reduce the strain on his hip, which doesn't make any sense to me. The whole thing is weird. I'm not sure I believe it's going to happen until it actually happens. And that was sort of my feeling about it. But every day I'm reading about it and the Padres are kind of like, Yesterday, for example, Monday, Tatis only took fly balls in the outfield so in pregame. He did not take any grounders at short. And the stories I've read from our own um, AJ Casavell, from other outlets, basically like the Padres are kind of like winking and basically saying, yeah, this is this is going to happen. Again, I guess we'll believe it when we see it. I mean, my concern is honestly, it's not that I don't think Tatis can be very good. I think that like there's a chance he'll make incredible plays, but there's a lot of just the rhythms of, you know, balls kind of in no man's land, like, you know, avoiding collision and not having that comfort that comfort in knowing how to play those balls coming in as opposed to coming out, which you're used to doing when you're an infielder. And then there's the wall, which seems really dangerous because yeah. that's like that takes time to learn how to do balls in the gap. I'm sure Tatis will run things down and make spectacular plays, but any time he would go back to a ball on the wall, I would, if I were a Padres fan or a Padres coach or Padres official, I would be like cringing and crossing my fingers because that seems extremely perilous. That was, that is exactly right. That was the first thing I thought of. I, I went back and I thought about Matt Kemp who in 2011 had this phenomenal season, came in second in the MVP race. And then the next season, start 2012, got off to this incredible start. Like he looked like he was just going to destroy the world. And then, and then in Colorado, 
you, you ran into the wall and you hurt his shoulder and he's basically never the same after that. Uh, the other thing too is I keep talking about center. Maybe it's right. I mean, Trent Christian, who I'm a huge fan of, has a, a 121 OPS plus. He was terrible in July, pretty hot in August. I don't really like the idea of benching him. He's a good outfielder too. I mean, if you bench Will Myers, I guess that makes a little sense. You know what they should do? Play Will Myers at first base <laughs> when there's left-handed hitters on the map, pitchers on the map. Uh, I don't know if they're actually going to do that, but I'm fascinated. This whole story is just absolutely fascinating. Me. We will take a quick break and we will come back and we'll talk about the Blue Jays. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We are back on the MOB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's not too often, I don't think, that in early August... We get to focus on a team that is in fourth place in their own division, as the Blue Jays are, and talk about how they are for real, and they are coming, and I think they're going to make the playoffs. The Blue Jays are in fourth place. They are seven games out in the American League East. However, since June 19th, so almost two months now, they have the best record in the American League. In the American League Wild Card, which is probably their path to the playoffs, they are tied in the last column with the Yankees. They are one game behind the Red Sox, who currently hold the second wild card. They are two games behind Oakland in the last column, who currently hold the first wild card. And here's my favorite part. They still have 17 remaining games with the Orioles, who are terrible, and the Twins, who are a monumental collapse. 17 more games. On Sunday against the Red Sox, they came back from five down to win 9-8. And a big part of that was George Springer, who hit a three-run shot. If you look at win probability at it, it was the single most important play of the Blue Jays season. And I got to say, as much fun as it was watching it live, it was way more fun later on listening to the French language call of this home run. I think I'm going to listen to all my baseball in French from now on because they have way more fun than we do. If you look at the best hitters in the second half, you look at it by weighted runs created plus uh, Bryce Harper is number one, which makes sense. We're going to talk about him in a minute. George Springer is number two ahead of Soto and Vado uh, and Starling Marte. And the fact that you can just, I know they wanted George Springer from day one and he was hurt and all that. The fact that you can add George Springer, to what's been a very good Toronto offense just seems deeply unfair. And before I dive into some pitching numbers and stuff here, is it nuts to think a fourth place team is still headed towards October? I don't think so, because as you mentioned, the schedule is is pretty favorable for them. They also have a bunch of games against, I mean, did you mention the Twins? Like They've also got a bunch of games against the Twins, who are, you know, terrible now. Yes, and- yes. Thank you for listening. The Orioles and the Twins. <laughs> You said Orioles. I can't remember if you said because there's a lot of the thing is it's hard to keep track of all the bad teams. So yeah, like it's fair. easy to let run off a list of teams that are terrible. Um, the schedule works in their favor, and um, they, they're deep. They made some 
key additions at the trade deadline um, that sort of round out their pitching staff. And I think that there's, there's, I, I, I see it. I mean, it's hard to sort of like visualize, okay, exactly who's going to be in, who's going to be out. I, I think the Red Sox are definitely sort of feeling a little, uh, feeling the heat yeah. right now. They had a brutal, brutal road trip that ended with that series in, in, um, in Toronto. So, I mean, the, the, the Blue Jays have a run differential, almost a hundred runs better than the Red Sox. So you can see why the, why I, I understand why you, why your belief in the Blue Jays, I should say. Can we talk about run differential for a second? This has been the kind of thing that I think that has been, uh, I don't want to say infuriating, but maybe frustrating Toronto fans for a lot of the season. Um, I follow a lot of Blue Jays fans on Twitter and I do Toronto radio shows. And so like, I feel like I have a, a decent idea of how they're feeling. And the Blue Jays have had a fantastic run differential all season long, which simply means they outscore their opponents by a lot. They right now uh, have the fourth highest run differential in baseball behind the Dodgers, Giants, and Astros. That's pretty good. And yet the wins weren't there. Not that they've been bad, but they've been slightly over 500 uh, for much of the season. And I know a lot of fans are getting frustrated by this saying, yes, I don't care that we've played like a top five team. We're not winning. And that's all that matters. And I think what's important there is when you look at when you're running a front office and you say to yourself, should we add to this team or should we maybe look to the future? That's one of the things they look at. I mean, look at the the Mariners, right? The Mariners have been outscored. I don't know what it is today, but it's been like minus 50 for a while. It's pretty fair to look at that team and say, we're not actually that good. The Blue Jays looked at this and they said, listen, uh, Robbie Gray has been unbelievable for us. And we like Hyunjin Ryu and Alec Manoa came up and he's been uh, really nice let's go, let's go trade for a year and a half of Jose Barrios. And he's been fantastic. You know, so like that trade, I think a lot of people thought maybe not an overpay for the two prospects they they gave up because they're both highly regarded, but it was definitely a high price to pay. But I think the Blue Jays front office said, listen, we're playing really well. Springer's coming back. And what I like is if you look at the run differential, it's not just like a season long thing. Every single month, they have been outscoring their opponents by more and more because the offense has been great. And the rotation has been really much better of late. Like Russ Stroplick's been really good. And the bullpen, which was like a 12 alarm fire, like fire, tire fire for most of the season. It's still not great, but they made a lot of trades. Like Adam Simber has been really good. And Trevor Richards has been really good. And here's the stat I found that I found when I was writing about the Blue Jays the other day. One of the reasons that their bullpen has been better lately, it's not just because they've been performing better, even though that's true. It's because they have completely avoided high leverage situations in ways that is just kind of nuts to think about. A high leverage situation takes into account context, right? How many runners are on base and outs? Yes, but also what's the score? What's the inning? A tight game in the ninth is much more important than a blowout in the third inning, that kind of thing. If you look at uh, the bullpen since the the start of July, the Blue Jays have only had 17 high leverage plate appearances for their bullpen, 17. The next highest, Pittsburgh, 51. The most, the Yankees, 125. So the Blue Jays offense has been great and the rotation has been great and the bullpen has not, you know, blown things up into these high leverage situations. I don't know if this is sustainable. I just found that gap and I thought it was wild. Like what's the best way to fix the massive problem you have? Avoid it entirely. I wish, (laughs) I wish, I wish there were easier ways to do that. It, there, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if there's another team, maybe the Astros, and they're, they are second only to the Astros in terms of weight runs created plus in all of baseball, that has as many hitters who are sort of 
clicking in this in this season. Um, obviously, Vladimir, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer, who you mentioned, who's won back-to-back Players of the Week awards, Marcus Simeon having a career year, Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette. Like, basically, the only guy who's really been a dis- quote-unquote disappointment, I'd say, is Kevin Biggio, and there are reasons to believe that he might not sort of be as good as he appeared in previous years. But you look at those, those top five guys, and you have, like, all of them who are I – I don't saying, like, playing at the peak of their abilities, but all playing in, like, you know, the – maybe like the 80th percentile or better to their abilities. And as an op- opposing pitching staff, you come and you face the Blue Jays and there really aren't any weak spots in that, in that lineup. Um, and they're fun. They're, and as much as anything, they're fun. They're a fun team to watch for that reason. Oh, hundred percent. It's funny. We just did like seven home minutes on the Blue Jays. We didn't mention Vladimir Guerrero Jr. <laughs> Which I think says a lot about how fun they are. Do you, how cool would it be if this ends up not just with a playoff game, but with a home playoff game in Toronto? after everything that's happened over the last two years. Like, I, I don't know offhand the rules there. I don't know if they'd be able to like 100% pack it. And obviously, you look around the world and everything is changing quickly. So who knows what anything will be like in two months. Um, but that would be just the coolest thing, I think. Like, I have no actual investment in the Blue Jays, but I want to see that. And as someone who is at um, a couple of their, their ALCS games against the the Royals in 2015, I can say from firsthand experience that games at Rogers Center in the postseason are loud and awesome and uh, definitely something that uh, it would it would be fun to see. And there's also, I mean, they even just going down the stretch against the Yankees, they have a bunch of games against the Yankees down the stretch that could really have significant significant uh, playoff implications. So that's, it should be, if nothing else, the AL wildcard race is going to be very competitive and very compelling and the Blue Jays will be in the thick of it. And yeah, I, I, I'm. It's. I feel like my my prediction for the AL wild card changes every every week. So I feel like I'm losing I'm losing credibility by being like, oh, it's actually going to be this team as opposed to that team. But you know, it could also end up being the Yankees and Toronto with the A's and the and the Red Sox on the outside looking in. Uh, that could be really fun. Okay, here's something I didn't think I would ever say in August: the first place Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, they are in first place. They are up by two games over Atlanta, two and a half over the Mets. Washington and Miami don't really matter. This division has been more of a mess than I think we thought it was going to be. Everybody said, okay, this is going to be kind of a slog. And I'm not sure any of these teams are actually any good, but the Phillies are in first place. A big part of that for me is Bryce Harper, uh, who we've talked about a little bit. He's not in my book, the MVP front runner necessarily, but if Tatis doesn't come back, we know Acuna won't come back. DeGrom probably has missed too much time. Bryce Harper is going to get MVP votes. And wouldn't it be wild if they won MVP and Cy Young because Zach Wheeler, who never seems to get enough credit, has been absolutely fantastic. He is, I don't know, is he your front runner? Can we say that right now? Because DeGrom's missed too much time, I think. I think he probably is, right? I mean, like you, he's, uh, Corbin Burns is Mitch, you know, he's got like, Wheeler has like 30 more innings than Corbin Burns. I guess Brandon Woodruff is also probably in that conversation. Walker Bueller is in the conversation. But I actually think the narrative is building around Wheeler. And the fascinating thing to me about Wheeler is that he was a guy when he came up, had a lot of injury woes. He missed almost two full seasons uh, recovering from, I shouldn't say he almost, he missed two full seasons recovering from Tommy John surgery. You know, from 2013, when he debuted through 2017, he threw a total of 372 innings, right? From 2019 to the present, he leads the majors with 422 innings pitched. He's third in in pitching uh, wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs, behind only DeGrom and Garrett Cole. And I think it's it, it took a while for people to kind of realize how good he's gotten. But I think this year is finally the year that he's kind of getting that attention. I mean, even last year, the, the weird, you know, pandemic-shortened season, 
his ERA was good, but his expected ERA was a lot higher because his, his strikeout rate was was down. And there was a little, maybe a little skepticism like, oh, this could be just the short season weirdness and maybe he's not quite that good. But this year he's got a career high um, strikeout rate. And it's, it's funny to kind of look back at um, when he signed because he signed with the Phillies and like it, was, it really played out in a weird way in the public, right? The the former Mets GM Brody Van Wagenen like kind of publicly, I don't want to say criticized, but I guess threw shade as they might say at Wheeler, basically saying, oh, he's not that good. Um, a couple of the quotes Van Wagenen had that offseason, he said, the contract and the market that Wheeler enjoyed was beyond what our appetite level was. I said that before, he got paid more than we were willing to give him. And I guess, hey, good for a GM for being honest, but it's just weird for a GM to say things like that. I guess it's not a surprise that Van Wagenen is no longer a GM. Um, and, you know, it's I have to give the, the Phillies credit because as bad as they've been at sort of turning, you know, they, you know, they, they basically tanked, you know, for what, six, six years, right? They, I mean, they, they have the, the second longest playoff drought of any team other than the Mariners. They haven't made the playoffs since 2011 and they basically tanked. They kind of tried to go the Astros route and they've really whiffed on their high draft picks with the exception of, I guess, Aaron Nola. Uh, none of their top draft picks have really panned out. You know, Mickey Moniak just seems like he's just a guy. Um, Alex Bohm has been just a guy. I guess it's too early to write him off, but he's been, you know, nothing special. Uh, Adam Hazley is out of baseball, or is it Halsley? I can't even remember. Uh, oh, I think but he's back. I think he left and he, I think he came back. But yeah. he's also just been kind of, you know, nothing nothing special. But where the Phillies have done well is with their big ticket free agent signings. You know, as we discussed last week, Bryce Harper's been um, fantastic, could win the MVP this year. He has a 145 OPS plus with the Phillies. He was 139 for his career with the Nationals. He's actually been better with the Phillies than he was with the Nationals. JT Realmuto has been very good in the first year of his five-year deal. Wheeler obviously has been great. Andrew McCutcheon has been good. Um, 116 OPS plus in his th- in three seasons of a three-year deal. Uh, he has a $15 million team option for next year, which I think the team will probably pick up. So while not all has gone right for the Phillies, they actually have done pretty well with their major uh, free agent investments. Let me ask you, Mike, do you believe in the Phillies? No, 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 absolutely. No, I absolutely don't believe in the Phillies. I believe in Bryce Harper. I believe in Zach Wheeler. It would help if McCutcheon was playing because I really like him a lot. I don't trust the bullpen at all. Kyle Gibson, I will admit, has been a little bit better than I thought he would be. I don't trust the defense. The thing is, I don't trust anybody else in that division. <laughs> like, could the Braves win the division? Uh, sure. But I think your points about the Phillies free agent spending are strong because when you go back to like the last decade of the Phillies, they made like three different mistakes. The, the first thing is they tried to hold on to the glory years a little bit too long. You know, like the 2007 to 11 crew of Rollins and Howard and Hamels and Chase Utley. Because I remember for like three years after that, they were still trying to roll with some of those guys, even though it was clear the team was not going to be any good. You know, so they they pivoted too late. And then, as you mentioned, their first round picks, their drafting and their their player development has been pretty weak here i'm gonna read you a list of names here's their first round picks uh since 2010 jesse biddle who's had a couple of moments in the big leagues but it has been a a reliever larry green who you don't know who that is mitch geller and shane watson and cornelius randolph uh jp crawford has turned into a good player but only after he got traded to seattle aaron nola as you said has been very very good moniac hasn't done anything hazley hasn't done anything 
I'm not very high on Alec Bohm. I know a lot of people think he is going to be a really good hitter. He can't play third base. And then it's too soon to say, you know, about the the most recent guys. So they really haven't done well there. But the um, the Harper and Wheeler signings are fun to me because I remember when Harper got signed, everybody said, you know, not everybody. There are a lot of people who were detractors of Bryce Harper because his defense wasn't great and hasn't been great. And people were like $330 million for a team that won the World Series. Uh, or, or I guess in retrospect, the team won the World Series in Washington after he left. And you could kind of look at it and say, OK, but he's young and he's been great. And you could argue he's underpaid. And he's been fantastic. And the Wheeler thing is fun because if you go back to that winner, there are a lot of comparisons between him and Madison Bumgarner, not because they're similar types of pitchers because they aren't, but just because they were two big names uh, in the free agent market. And I remember a lot of people saying, well, you know, Bumgarner is obviously going to get more. He's had more success. And it was a big bet by the Phillies on the fact that there were a ton of red flags about Bumgarner, which have a lot of them come true. You know, he's been OK lately. And Wheeler was like a big bet on these underlying metrics and signs of improvement. I remember, I wish I'd looked this up beforehand. I think it was Andrew Simon, uh, one one of our colleagues here who had written something along the lines of the Phillies had just signed like the next Garrett Cole because all of the underlying metrics were like very similar and there was room for improvement. And I'm not ready to say Wheeler is Cole just yet, but his strikeout rate has ticked up a lot. Like he has been fantastic. And it's funny that's you go into the, the free agent marketplace and it's not about what have you done. It's about what do you think you will do? And the Phillies, the Phillies won big on this one. I mean, he's basically been <laughs> in from 2019, the present he's his, his fan war is identical to Cole. I mean, yes, in a vacuum, I take Cole, but it, this is not a, at this point. It's not, it's not a fluke. He is one of the best pitchers in the league. And he's, I think he's probably gonna win the Cy Young award. Yeah, I think you might be right. When I look at the National League Cy Young, like DeGrom was running away with this. Now I think he's just missed too much time. The competitors are are Wheeler. I would have said Corbin Burns two months ago, but he has kind of missed enough time too. He's like 40 innings behind Wheeler. Uh, Woodruff and Bueller, I think are my top three. I love Herman Marquez. I think a Rockies pitcher is always going to have a tough time winning the Cy Young, but I would put him in there. I would have said Freddie Peralta, but he's also not thrown enough innings. Kevin Gausman's been very good. So if it comes down to Wheeler... And Woodruff and Bueller, I think I would go Zach Wheeler. And I think it would be fun if the Phillies ended up with both the MVP and the Cy Young, even though that's probably not actually going to happen. All right, our third topic, the Giants and the death of batting practice. Batting practice, it's a thing that's been around for 200 million years. You go to a game early and the cage is set up and guys are out there slugging balls into the seats and feeling good about themselves. And it's just one of those things you never thought about because it's always been there. And maybe it's not anymore. The The San Francisco Giants, I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. We've talked about them a lot, how they are, you know, the year's most shocking competitor because everybody thought they'd be in third and they're in first place. Even though there were things to like about them this winter, nobody thought that this was going to happen, myself included. And when I wrote about them two weeks ago, what I had said at the time was that I had preseason uh, Zips projections going back to 2005, so nearly 500 team seasons. And so far, or at least at the time, they are the second largest overperformers based on what was expected. The only team that did better was the 2012 Orioles, and that was based entirely because they set, at the time, the all-time record for best record in one-run games, which is a little bit about a great bullpen and a little bit about some luck. And we've talked about this like a ton. Why is this happening? Because Posey and Crawford and Longoria are playing like the best versions of themselves and the front office does a great job of finding under the radar guys like Lamont Wade and Mike Jastrzemski. 
And everybody I've seen talking about it on the offense, they give credit to their hitting coaches, Donnie Ecker and Justin Veal and Dustin Lind, and about what they have brought over, both in terms of like advanced technology and communication skills and data and everything. And one of the things that stands out in that is that they don't chase. They have the largest decrease in chase rate, swings outside the zone of any team from last year, which is an incredibly powerful thing. All right. So this came out in June, and I didn't notice it until recently, but NBC Sports Bay Area, uh, they were they reported a story that Giants play-by-play announcer Dave Fleming was talking about on local radio, and he was watching batting practice, and he said he'd never seen this before. He said that they were hitting off of two machines. One was throwing fastballs up to 96 miles an hour, and one was tossing nasty sliders. And I remember we talked about this. I think you might have been actually on vacation this week when I was doing it with David Adler. Uh, Matt Olson. Part of the reason for his great season was that he was using this new pitching machine that Tommy LaStella had introduced him to. And all of a sudden, it's like, are you helping yourself with batting practice if you're just hitting meatballs, if you're hitting home run derby pitches that you would never hit in a real baseball game? Should you not practice like you play? And I think it seems like the Giants are starting to do that. Matt, are we witnessing the death of batting practice? Slowly but surely, I think so. I feel like this was something that... that Joe Madden started doing, I think, with the Cubs a few years ago. It might even go back to his time with the Rays. Um, and it's something that has like been building some some currency in certain circles. So yeah, I think we're probably um getting there. You know, I think the, the batting practice in its current form, it's kind of just like, well, this is what we've always done, and it's kind of a routine. I think there's probably some element of the routine to it that people like. And there's something to be said for that. But in terms of preparing you to play, I'm not really sure uh what it does. It's kind of funny because I think there would, there would be a certain segment of the fan base that would say, oh, it's another it's another old school thing that the, the nerds are killing. And it, you know, isn't like the most isn't it an old school thing you've been hearing for years is practice like you play. Like, isn't that exactly what you should be doing? It, this all reminds me of an article that Jeff Sullivan wrote in the Hardball Times Annual in 2018. And he is now an analyst for the Rays. So they clearly valued his opinion. And the article was titled batting practice is probably a waste of everyone's time. And he admitted when he started writing it that he was going to have a hard time proving this theory because there's no data. You cannot go and look up teams that do batting practice or don't do batting practice or what kind of batting practice they, they do. You just can't. So it's more theoretical. But he said he started thinking about it in 2017 because at Sabre Seminar, which is like a big gathering of Sabermetrics types, uh, former Major League outfielder Fernando Perez, our friend and former podcast guest and occasional colleague here, talked about what a mindless waste of time it was. And I started thinking about that uh, because in February of this year, who did the Giants hire? Fernando Reyes. <laughs> I'm not going to make a one-to-one connection there. I'm not saying he brought this great idea to them that no one had ever thought of. It was just funny to me to, to think that the Giants um, had hired him. And it makes just a ton of sense. And I, I wonder, like, if you think about like five years ago, it was pretty clear what teams were like in on fastball spin rate, who knew what they were doing and knew how to use it, and what teams did not. And now I'm kind of want to start watching batting practice every night at every park just to see who's doing it this way or not doing it this way. Well, I mean, I mentioned Joe Madden before, and there's a connection here that goes back to all of it. Joe Madden was the manager of the Rays, and two of his players were Gabe Kapler, manager of the Giants, and Fernando Perez, who was a reserve I mean, who was a reserve outfielder on those Rays teams and now works for the Giants. So, it, like, it all comes kind of weaves back to Tampa Bay. You also mentioned Jeff Sullivan now working with the Rays. So none of this is a coincidence as far as uh, as far as I'm concerned. I also want to share an amusing quote uh, a tweet I saw 
a few weeks ago um, from Robert Stock, who I think was with the Cubs at the time, is now with the Mets. Uh, the Sports Center Twitter account tweeted out. Uh, they tweeted out something that said Shohei Otani has not taken batting practice all season. Angels hitting coach Jeremy Reed told Buster Buster Olney. And Robert Stock replied, "Wow, you're telling me he doesn't practice hitting 60 mile per hour fastballs from 40 feet, and he's still the best home run hitter in baseball." <laughs> and I think that story got misconstrued a little bit. It, it doesn't mean he's not swinging, right? Like exactly. he's, in the, he's in the cages. He's taking his own version of. He's just not on the field hitting mindless like fly balls. You know, that's that's really all it is. It's like practice to try to see the things you'll see on the field. Cause we've always been talking about how far ahead pitchers are of batters. Cause the, the technology is easier for pitchers and they get to control the way they throw it. And it's harder for batters to react. This might be one of those things that they can use to fight back. And now I'm going to have like a really critical eye. If I go to a game <laughs> and I see dudes just swing and I'm be like, not so sure about that. Uh, the, but again, there's no data. It's hard. The, to tell. the one thing I would be curious about, and this maybe is a conversation for another time. Maybe this is something, this might be a good off season uh, podcast topic. We get to get a, get a professional hitting coach on here is the batter's eye. That's one benefit I could see, especially if you're playing on the road to taking batting practice on the field is just getting used to seeing the ball out of the hand with the, with the, the background in place. But that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation. I will buy it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to highlight a guy that you should know a little more about and then finish up uh, with a rant and rave. My guy, I know Matt's going to roll his eyes at me. It's a reliever who's got a high strikeout rate. I know I do this a lot, but they're fascinating. One of my favorite things in baseball would be guys who maybe, uh, you know, the Giants kind of guy, right, who haven't been successful and then figure out something that make them pretty successful. And for me, it is Paul Sewell, who is a Seattle Mariners reliever. And I was watching the game on Sunday. He struck out four of the five Yankees he faced. He struck out Brick Gardner, DJ LeMahieu, Aaron Judge, Joey Gow all in a row. And then he got Stanton to ground out to third base. I remember him from earlier in the season because he had a really funny tweet. He got called up to Seattle on May 13th. He was called up the same day as Logan Gilbert and Jared Kelnick, who are two very highly regarded prospects for the Mariners. And he tweeted something along the lines of, oh, these three young guns are coming up. Paul Sewell's 31 years old. <laughs> He'd been with them. He was a 10th rounder of the Mets since in 2012. And he spent parts of four seasons with them. The last four seasons, 125 games, 550 ERA. And, you know, I don't care about win loss record. When you have a one in 14 record, even I'm going to mention it. He was DFA'd in 2019. Nobody claimed him. He was non-tendered by the Mets after last year. And he was signed by the Mariners in January to a minor league deal. He has a 43% strikeout rate. If you were to look at every pitcher in baseball who's thrown 30 innings and you sort them by strikeout rate, the top three are Jacob deGrom, Josh Hader, and Craig Kimbrell. Names five through seven are Liam Hendricks, Matt Barnes, and Aroldis Chapman. Number four, Paul Sewell, which is wild to me. How does he do it? He throws entirely four seamers and sliders, almost entirely, a changeup every now and then. 
he is he talked pretty openly about you know how he and his agent targeted Seattle a little bit because they are a place that pitchers seem to think can help you improve and get better. Look at Kendall Graveman. He's throwing his four-seamer a little higher this year. It was 2.4 feet off the ground last year, 2.8 feet now. He's got this really good uh, side-to-side slider. He's throwing it from a lower slot. It's a couple inches lower to the ground. Not quite sidearm, but a little more than three-quarter. Lots to talk about funk and deception. And the fact that he can just do that, he can throw his fastball a little differently, throw his slider a little differently. He's also just talked about the fact that uh, the Mariners have embraced him and they said, we think you're really good. Go out and be good. Like the, the mental side of this is also super important. And a guy that the Mets couldn't find room for is now one of the best strikeout pitchers in baseball. And I don't mean that to dump on the Mets. You never know. Like, did it have to be a change of scene? Did it have to be trying to make a good impression on a new franchise? All this stuff goes into it. I don't really know. That is cool to me that that a guy who had objectively been a lousy major league pitcher for four years can come in and be something of a star. I enjoy that for sure. And what I mean, good for him. He clearly made these changes and it's he's a different guy. It's 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 because what I remember him when he came up, he had good, pretty good minor league numbers, but it always felt he was more of like kind of a more um, maybe because uh, he comes from a low arm angle. He felt more like a Brad Ziegler type who was going to try and rely on deception and soft contact. And his strikeout numbers were for reliever standards were always kind of pretty, you know, pretty pedestrian, even in the in the minors, you know, peaking in like the, you know, 30 percent or so. And this year he's at 43 percent. So clearly he's he's found a new way to to miss bats. And he's been, uh, dare I say, dominant. All right. Who do you have? Oh, we have an old friend here for Matt. I can't wait to hear about this. (laughs) Long-time listeners of the podcast will remember a man by the name of Bradley Zimmer, who was a StatCast darling in the early years. And on Monday night, he hit a, a ball 471 feet to dead center off Wade Miley of the Reds. He's like Springer in that he's a different animal. And that ball is different. Crushed. Deep. Gone. Way out of here. Bradley Zimmer absolutely destroys one to straightaway center field. You're not going to see many hit that far. He's into Heritage Park. And I mean high into those trees. The Indians have never had a player hit a ball that far since StatCast began tracking at the start of the 2015 season. Edwin Encarnacion was the previous uh, Cleveland record holder with a 466-foot homer at Camden Yards on June 20th, 2017. Uh, Supposedly, Jim Tomey once hit one 511 feet, but this was pre-tracking, so we'll just have to, you know, that is the unofficial record for an Indians, uh, or I should say now soon-to-be Guardians player. But uh, Bradley Zimmer now holds that distinction. And the reason why Bradley Zimmer is interesting, or he was interesting in 2017, and he's interesting to me again, is that he has some of the loudest tools in baseball. He has, you know, 95th percentile sprint speed. Uh, He's one of the best outfielders in the game. For example, he he, he is tied for sixth among outfielders with six outs above average this year. But he's only played in 55 games. He's... uh, in his career, he's 31 for 36 in stolen base attempts. So for me, I always like these players. I wish there were more guys like him. There's, you know, there's some, you know, there's some, I don't want to say full, there's kind of some poor man's parallels to Byron Buxton here because he's just been dogged by injuries. Uh, in 2017, his first year when he kind of was making waves uh, with StatCast with his incredible speed, uh, arm strength. He's also, I think, hit 100 miles per hour uh, with an outfield throw in the past. He broke his hand that shortened his 2017 season. 
2018, he hurt his chest and ribs crashing into the wall at Yankee Stadium. And then he hurt his shoulder while rehabbing and he had a torn labrum and he had to have surgery that kept him out the rest of the year. He only played in 34 games. Then he ended up only playing nine games in 2019 after straining his oblique while rehabbing. Last year, he was mostly at the alternate site. This year, he's been pretty good. You know, he's hitting 248, 357, 363, basically a league average OPS plus, seven for nine in stolen bases. He's not young, so I'm not saying this guy's a future star or anything. He's just interesting. He turns 29 in November. Let him play. Bradley Zimmer can do some things that very few guys can do in baseball, and I like to see him on the field. Man, we have been talking about this guy for a long time. 2017? Is that really when he first came up? I I appreciate your dedication to trying to say that there's an interesting Cleveland outfielder uh, because we've been trying on that one for quite a long time. I agree with you. Like, let him play. Why, why not at this point? They traded for Miles Straw, uh, who's got a lot of speed. I'm not sure the bat is there, but I, I find him interesting. Uh, they traded away Eddie Rosario. Uh, Josh Naylor is injured. Uh, they traded away Jake Bowers. Uh, you know, they always need outfielders. They might as well be Zimmer. All right, we like to finish off with a rant. Here's mine. Our friend David Adler, who was a a podcast guest host a couple weeks ago, got stuck with the thankless task this week of having to write up the MLB.com power rankings, which is usually done by Allison Footer, but she was on vacation. The way the power rankings work, there's like seven or eight of us, myself included, each week rank the teams from one to 30 and you average them out. And then you get your power rankings, and then we write up a little content about them. These are not the most serious things in the world. They're kind of fun content to do each week. Can I tell you which fan base was infuriated this week and sent, not threats necessarily, but requests for David to quit his job? Poor David, who didn't even vote and just had to write it up. Uh, Blue Jays fans. And I will say I, I understand a little bit. The Blue Jays were ranked 14th this week, actually down three spots, which I will admit was surprising to me. 14th is probably a little bit too low. And yet, when you look at the reasons why uh, the complaints Blue Jays fans had were, well, they're the hottest team in baseball. They are one of the hottest teams in baseball. They had gone 8-2 and two in their previous 10. Matt, do you know off the top of your head how many teams in the 10 days leading up to uh, Sunday had gone 8-2 and two in their previous 10? How many? Six. Six teams had done that. It's a thing that happens. If you wanted to be like totally, totally cynical about it, you could say they're in fourth place in their own division. As we explained earlier, I don't care about that too much. Uh, but, you know, should they have been a little higher? Yeah, probably. I think their signs are pointing up. Do we have an actual anti-Canadian bias as like six different people accused us of? No, I don't think so. Maybe against the Maple Leafs. Sure. But not in this scenario. Um the Blue Jays are a really good and interesting team that are on their way up. I probably, in retrospect, rated them too low. I probably, if I could have done it now, would have had them like, I don't know, 10th? I'm not putting them up there with the Rays or the White Sox or the Astros or the Dodgers or the Giants. They're on their way up. They're still in fourth place in the American League East. Power rankings are fun. I'm so sorry, David. Next time Matt asks you to write this, say no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, David, I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry as well. I did not, did not mean to do, to do that to you. Um, my, uh, purpose pitch is going, is about team chemistry. Uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago, right before the trade deadline, there was a lot of talk at the time the, the Mets were in first place and they were up by four or five games. And there was a lot of talk of, you know, the, the Mets are very, 
very hesitant to make any significant trades at the trade deadline because they're worried about how it might affect their team chemistry, right? Well, since the trade deadline, the Mets are two and eight, and it's clear they needed to make serious upgrades to their team, and a lot of their quote unquote success was a mirage. Now, I won't dismiss team chemistry. I think it's important, but I'll remain skeptical of it as a driving force for a team's success, especially when it is only used to justify that said success after the fact. Because going into the year, no one was like, oh, the Mets have special chemistry. That is why they're going to be good. Especially, you know, like from June 1st until until the trade deadline, the Mets were 29 and 27. And they barely had a positive run differential on the season. It was very obvious that there were flaws with the team. And those flaws have been exposed in the last couple of weeks. They're 2-8 and eight since the trade deadline. They fall in the third place. Um, and they did make one sort of significant trade. They added Javi Baez. And I guess if you want to be really cynical, you could say Javi Baez has ruined the team chemistry. Of course, Javi Baez, we know that he's like best friends with Francisco Lindor. And Lindor was dying to have him on the team. And Javi Baez basically played in the postseason every year of his career and, and with with the Cubs and was the 2016 NLCS MVP. So I'm not really sure we can make that argument. Point is, chemistry matters, but it only seems to matter to people as a justification for any team's success after the fact. And it is usually flimsy um, at that. You know what? I'm fully on board with you on that. The rant I was, I was going to do when I decided to do the power rankings one instead was the the Mariners um, are four and eight since they made the trade that was super unpopular to send Kendall Graveman to Houston. And I think it's super easy to say, well, you, you ruined the clubhouse. And maybe that's true. Everybody was mad. We talked about the trade at the time. None of us liked the the timing of this trade, you know, but Abraham Toro, who they got back, has been fantastic. And they got back a really good reliever in Diego Castillo. And most importantly, as we've talked about ad nauseum, the Mariners have been outscored by a ton this year. I would have given you 98% odds on July 27th that the Mariners would start losing games, which is exactly it's what, what has happened. They've also played uh, the Rays and the Yankees in their last two series, you know, two pretty competitive teams. Is that because Jerry DePoto screwed up and lost the clubhouse? Sure, maybe. I, I was not supportive of the timing of the moves he made. Is it because this team was only okay and they were playing better teams and that was probably going to happen anyway? I would argue yes. I would argue both of those things can be true. So yes, Matt, I agree with you. Team chemistry is a a real thing, but it's also the kind of thing where it's like, does winning create chemistry or does chemistry create winning? You'll never know the answer. Get good good players, preferably players who are high character, and I think good things will happen. Absolutely. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.